Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Emily Anderson Stern, State Watch reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune, Sean Higgins, political reporter with KUER, and Jay Evenson, opinion editor with the Deseret News. Thank you so much for being with us this evening as we talk about a lot of things happening in politics in Utah and nationally. But I wanna start with the big announcement this week with you, Jay. Uh, the Attorney General, Sean Reyes, announced uh, by video that he is not going to seek re-election next year. Talk about the implications of that announcement. He made the announcement on a, on a video, as you said, on social media, so he didn't take any questions. Um, but he did say that he had met with the women who are um, suing Tim Ballard uh, for a, alleged uh, sexual assault and, uh, and, and that type of thing. And he had met with them over several days and listened to their arguments, and he said that he believed them. And uh, this, is a, this is an about face for him. He had been accused of uh, trying to interfere with investigations into Tim Ballard. Uh, so he, he said he was not going to be running for uh, re-election, but that his office would be opening an investigation on Tim Ballard. Uh, now this comes amid also the legislature approved an, uh, an audit, an internal audit of his office. Um, so this is the, the third attorney general in a row in the state of Utah that uh, has left under a cloud of uh, some type of scandal. Uh, and it's, uh, it's causing some people to think maybe we need to appoint our attorney general instead of elect him. Uh -huh. So, so the, Emily, that is true, right? Some of our legislature, some members have talked about doing this, and it seems like that's not a thought that they are dismissing very quickly. Right, and it's interesting because some of the past attorneys general who have left under scandal, the legislature has tried before to find ways to fix this, right? They created the Executive Branch Ethics Commission. Um, that hasn't, nothing has really come out of that in the years that it's existed. Uh, and so now, you know, lawmakers said, some people were wondering if with Sean Reyes not running next year, if we still need the audit. And lawmakers said, yeah, we still need the audit because we need to figure out why this keeps happening. Yeah. So it's, we'll see if they want to try and find a way that uh, attorneys generals are appointed or if they try to find some other way to um, fix what they see as as an issue. Yeah, Sean, so it does seem true that the legislature has looked at this and they said, okay, we got, we got the announcement, but we're still going to continue because they have their eyes on how they will form that office going forward. Yeah, I, I think it, it reflects an interesting political trend we've seen over the last few years of a increasing politicization of attorneys general offices across the country, whether it's in red states going after things like abortion, like we just saw in Texas with Ken Paxton. Sean Reyes has definitely leaned into a little bit more of the, the political side of things, taking strong stances and being very upfront with, with where he wants to take the state. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, you have Letitia James in New York with all the uh, uh, cases against Donald Trump. And I think taking a serious look at making this an appointed position rather than an elected one is maybe an effort to 
bring some, I mean, bring a little bit of, I mean, I hate to use the cliche, but Utah way back into the attorney general's office of, of making it a, a place for everyone in Utah and not just someone who is a, a red meat Republican. Well, and one thing I will say about changing it to an appointed position is Sean Reyes was appointed when he initially came into the office. And so will that actually fix the issue? What other safeguards might be put in place? That's a very good point. And you know, the interesting thing is there is no perfect way to run a democracy. And of course, on the federal level, the president appoints the attorney general, and that hasn't kept that from, from being a problem from time to time. So if he's appointed, he or she is appointed, uh, that is also highly political, because the governor is going to want to pick someone who he feels is loyal to his agenda. Uh, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, that creates problems as well. So I, I spoke with Senator Mike McKell the other day. He's thinking about running a bill to, to change this to an appointed position. There are only seven states in the country that have appointed attorney generals. Forty-three others are like us here in, in Utah. It'll be interesting to see if this record now of three straight attorney generals will be enough to change some minds at the legislature, because this, this came up. 30-something years ago and was defeated. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we already seen some candidates line up. In fact, one announcement, Sean, Derek Brown uh, has announced that he's going to be running for this particular position. But it's an interesting kind of connection to this is that it is it's former Governor Gary Herbert who is helping to help with his campaign, helping to get him connected. And he's also the person who did appoint Sean Reyes. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. And I think one thing we've learned, particularly with the Congressional District 2 race, the power of endorsement is very strong here in Utah. And to have a name like Gary Herbert backing a campaign this early in the process, I think kind of signals where the, the quote unquote establishment, if you will, wants this race to go. But like you said, it's super early. The other contenders are very unclear right now. A couple names are floating around, but Derek Brown is the only one who's said he wants this job. What I will say is interesting. I think, was it the Deseret News and Hinkley Institute of Politics that ran the poll running Derek Brown up against Sean Reyes? And Sean Reyes had the lead in that poll. So, you know, another potential name that's been, that's been floated was Melissa Holyoke, who is the Solicitor General under Sean Reyes. And so, you know, if she jumps in, will Utahns see that she's been working in the AG's office? Um, and will she get some of that support, yeah. too? We've not run that poll yet, but there are okay. many polls out there that are trying to gauge the interest in that, that particular race. So we're going to watch it closely. Are you seeing, like, legislators and others, Emily, who want to jump into this race? Well, what I'm curious, you know, I, I again, you know, Utah's a red state, and it'll likely be a Republican that ends up in, um, in the position. But I'm curious if Andrew Stoddard jumps in. He has pushed for yeah. Sean Reyes impeachment before. He's an attorney. Um, there are a number of attorneys in the legislature who we could see uh, seek higher office who've thought about it before, um, who've thought about running for Congress, and, you know, maybe they'll look at a, a statewide position. It's one of those races that it's, it's difficult for voters. How do you tell who's going to be a, a good attorney general? And so it comes down to things like uh, endorsements mm -hmm. and, and that type of thing. But um, it, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, you know, we have a number of those races, particularly on the local level, if you, you know, auditor and, and um, assessor and that type of thing. And attorney general, though, is a much more important office. But I think it's hard for voters to make a decision. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to switch gears for a moment to an, an issue that is certainly uh, raging here in Utah, but across the country. And this is the issue of free speech 
on college campuses. And it's, it was, I say this, this is na national because we, all, we see presidents testifying before Congress about this. It's taken down at least one president this last week. But Sean, give us a little flavor right here because our own Board of Higher Education for the state of Utah this past week came out with a resolution saying universities, these are state-run universities, are out of the political statement business. No more political statements from universities. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, this is a debate that's been going on in the country since at least the Vietnam War. What is the, the, the place of the university? Is it a place for safe learning? Is it a place to exchange ideas where, and interact with people who do not think the way you think? Um, and in this statement, Utah is kind of taking a stand that this is a place where you need to be challenged intellectually and, and politically. And we've certainly seen a lot of pushback uh, just in the last handful of years with the uh, racial justice movement um, during the COVID pandemic, and then now with, with everything going on between Israel and Hamas, really tearing campus communities apart, uh, whether people who are pro-Palestine or, or pro-Israel. And I think this is an effort to kind of cool the temperature a little bit, but it seems to have not the opposite effect, but it's definitely irritating uh, uh, some people. So Emily, this seems to be something that's happening with universities is students, key stakeholders saying, I demand a statement. You need to condemn something or support something. Uh, where do you see this going here in Utah when it looks like for the universities, it's been said you need to, you need to stay, stay down on those comments, but how this impacts the students themselves? Well, I think something that's interesting is even in the past, a lot of the universities in Utah have kind of tried to stay middle of the road with a lot of these issues. And what this really, this really brings up the question is, what is political? Um, the debate of, you know, something that's been brought up um, with these discussions. The Governor Spencer Cox in his town hall this week said that he wants to take a big look at diversity programs at the universities in the state. He says they become very political and more divisive than unifying. Um, but some people would say that they don't feel like the actions that those programs have taken are political. They think that um, some of those actions are just um, things that make the universities a more inclusive space to all of its students. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to say where this might go. A number of lawmakers have been looking at this issue and have been talking about it for quite a while now. And so we could see a number of bills that would impact that. But Governor Spencer Cox also said that we can expect to hear more from him in the coming months about these diversity programs. Um, Oklahoma's governor actually just put out an executive order essentially banning diversity programs at state mm -hmm. institutions in the state. So Governor Spencer Cox certainly could take action himself. The legislature has looked at this in the past. Just last year, Senator Johnson proposed a bill to eliminate these DEI programs. He pulled it at the time, said it needed more research. It was looked at during the interim. So I, I fully expect that to be taken up again come January. Get, getting back to the, uh, the neutrality um, issue, I think this gives uh, universities cover uh, because a lot of them get in trouble for, for not taking positions on issues, but now they can say, well, the Board of Higher Education says we can't do that, and so, uh, you know, end of discussion. So it gives them a little bit of, of cover from, from some of the critics. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you make of this First Amendment question, Jay? You've been connected to this issue for such a very long time. The implications for that uh, on, on universities, but also the dialogue itself, and as we just discussed, how it does seem to get connected to equity, diversity, and inclusion programs. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think we've kind of forgotten the purpose of the First Amendment. It doesn't exist to protect speech that we agree with. It's, it, it exists to protect speech that's offensive or that we, that we disagree with. 
And, and I think the idea of universities as a, a free uh, a place for, for the free exchange of ideas is, is a great one and, it, and goes to the, the reason we have universities. And I think we, we need to, to have places where uh, there can be that free exchange of ideas, no matter how offensive, no matter how uh, it may upset people. Uh, without repercussions, you know, as, as long as you don't get violent. I think, uh, I think we've stepped away from that a little bit, and uh, we want everyone to take sides, and, and we want to, you know, push our side is right, and, and you have to be quiet. I mean, it's it's like like I said earlier, it's it's just this debate that's been going on for decades in the United States. What is the role of the American university? Yeah. And I think it's been simmering under the surface for a long time. I know there have been students at various universities who have uh, boycotted conservative speakers coming to campus. And um, now we have this new wave with fueled by the, the, the feelings of the Israel-Hamas war that are, are, are fueling this new, new movement of, hey, maybe universities need to take a step back on all this. Mm -hmm. We're going to be following this one very closely because I think it's going to going to continue to be discussed on campuses and in Congress. Can we talk to, about the governor's budget for a moment, Emily? So uh, the governor had his big rollout, uh, took a couple of days to put out the, the top priorities, and this is a responsibility of the governor to put a, a budget together and and relay that to the legislature. This was a $29.5 billion budget, the biggest budget in the history of the state of Utah. Right. And... There was a lot to it, but the biggest parts of the budget, what he, he called it his centerpiece, were initiatives to create more affordable housing and to try to curb homelessness mm -hmm. in the state. Uh, you know, he, he wants to put more money um, toward helping first-time homebuyers actually purchase and own a home. Um, it would build off of a bill that the legislature passed last year that prioritizes um, funding to help people buy homes, but those have to be new developments. Uh, and, you know, also looking at homelessness, uh, he put a lot of money toward um, trying to fund what state officials call the sequential intercept model, um, really trying to end chronic homelessness. So folks that uh, may be struggling with addiction or mental health crises, yeah. getting the help they need. Yeah, so this is an interesting and huge amount of money that Emily just brought up for, uh, for the homeless population to support them. $193 million, Sean, is how much money uh, he is recommending to go towards these programs. And I mention this not just because it's a lot of money, but it's interesting that this is the state stepping into what is often a local issue. Yeah, I, I think particularly in Utah, this is a nationwide issue, I think, is what we all need to recognize. Utah is not the only state that is dealing with this, and Salt Lake, oops, Salt Lake City is not the only city in Utah that is dealing with this as well. And I think, as we saw illustrated by the mayoral campaign between Rocky Anderson, Michael Valentine, and Aaron Mendenhall, this was a central issue, and Mayor Mendenhall really has successfully, over the last few years, made people, particularly at the legislature and the governor's office, understand that this is not just a Salt Lake City issue. This is being felt everywhere. So I think it is very telling to see the governor put so much money toward this. And I think the big takeaway talking with experts in this topic is there's no silver bullet to this problem. And when we approach things, whether it's the housing aspect of it or the treatment aspect of it, it's really these strategic infusions of resources at these bottlenecks in the system that create a, a, a cascading effect that leads to more people on the street. It's interesting he wants to set up kind of a, a parallel 
um, justice system to handle uh, homelessness uh, so people get treatment for mental illness and su substance abuse and that type of a thing. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch that go through the legislature and, and look at the details of how that works and whether there's criticism that, oh, you're, you're being soft on, on crime because there are homeless people who commit crimes. And if they're put through this separate track, they won't have to face the same punishment as people in the regular justice system. So I, it's going to be interesting to watch that one as it moves. Mm -hmm. Uh, connected to housing, uh, I, I find it to be interesting that uh, as an economic development effort, people who are watching the show know housing is not very affordable in the state of Utah right now. And so there's a couple programs I just thought we'd highlight for a moment. Uh, Emily, if you talk about these, $50 million for the first time home buyer assistance program, uh, $75 million for infrastructure to get water, electricity to these homes, and $25 million toward construction and housing innovation. This is clearly a priority for the governor to lower that cost, get people into homes. Right, and he said as part of his budget, all of these uh, initiatives are supposed to go toward building 35,000 new homes, starter homes, mm -hmm. that people can afford for their first home um, by 2028. That's a lot in the next four years, but that is about what we would need for our growing state. Uh, you know, some of the questions that have been brought up as he's talked about these initiatives are, one, will cities get on board? Yeah. Two, will developers get on board? You know, it's usually more lucrative for them to build um, rental units like apartment buildings or large homes. Um, they might not be making as much money with this kind of program. Um, and also, you know, is this going to push more detached, single family detached housing instead of more dense housing, which is what we may need as we continue to grow? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, the, the, these are the issues that <clears throat> that local political careers are, are won and lost on. So true. And, you know, there are mayors and city council people who have lost their, their seats because of decisions they've made about high-density housing or starter homes. So that's really... The, the governor has to has to get those people on board with this agenda, but it's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And as uh, Emily said, you know, we we need developers as well to see that oh, you can make money on this, maybe not as much as you can elsewhere. That's where some of these incentives to put in infrastructure and that type of thing on on uh, vacant lots, I think, come come in. Uh, but again, it'll be it'll be a tricky process to get this going. And the other interesting side of this, I think, is the things that are out of any of our control, things like interest rates and, and, and the borrowing power of money has, I think I looked at this last night that the, the nationwide interest rate is just under 7% right now. Two years ago, it was less than half of that. So it's twice as expensive to borrow money now. And, and, and talking with some housing experts this week, they really said over the next two years, don't expect any monumental mm -hmm. changes in the housing market, just the way with with the economy is working right now. But uh, from a policy perspective, especially with housing, I'm hearing things work in five to 10 year increments. So that four year horizon for 35,000 new starter homes, it is an audacious goal as, as Governor Cox said himself, but is something that could be achievable given the, the will of developers and mm -hmm. the political will of people here in Utah. Turns out all you really need to do is win the lottery. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> uh, let's talk about the upcoming legislative session. Jay, give a comment on this because Representative Kira Berkland wants to open up and legalize the lottery in the state of Utah. Of course, the lottery is not legal here in Utah, all gambling, including lotteries. She's looking for a constitutional amendment to bring lotteries to the state of Utah. Yeah, you might think, I mean, this is tilting at windmills in a state like Utah. <clears throat> but 
Um, to get a constitutional amendment, it, of course, requires a vote of the people. We saw a couple of years ago when we uh, legalized medical marijuana in Utah how people came out of the woodwork to vote for that uh, issue that, that I believe was the highest uh, voter mm -hmm. percentage we'd had in, in many, many years. So if you could get this on the ballot, I'm not sure how it would go. You may get people coming out of the woodwork voting for it. <clears throat> the, the, the trick is getting it on the ballot. And I, I, I think this is a really heavy lift at the legislature. Um, there are all kinds of studies out there about how uh, lotteries are uh, re regressive uh, tax. Uh, that's mostly uh, low-income people who, who spend money on them. Uh, Washington Post did a, a great piece a while back about uh, schools that are supposed to be helped by lotteries but are still starving for money mm -hmm. and why that is and how they haven't lived up to the promises uh, th that they had initially. Um, so I, I think all of these things come into play. Uh, th there are a lot of institutions in Utah that are opposed to this. Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a heavy lift, but if it got on the ballot, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what would happen. That's so interesting. Emily, of course, Representative Berkland said she'll take the money to reduce taxes in the state. But another interesting point that she mentioned while she's looking at lotteries are raffles. Many of us have been to events where raffles are happening. Probably not legal, but I want to. Uh, she, she addressed this as a little bit because it'll be sort of a, a connection to her bill. But maybe a quote really quickly because I know we've all been to these events. But here's what she said about these raffles. Let's be honest, everyone does them. Every lawmaker has showed up at one where it's happening, an event where it's happening. Schools do it, churches do it, everyone's doing charitable raffles. They're for a good cause and technically by the book, they're illegal in Utah. I think it's something that with the lottery, we can go ahead and just fix for our state. Just as difficult as Jay was just talking about the raffles versus the lottery. Probably not. I, I wouldn't be surprised if lawmakers at some of their own fundraisers had <laughs> raffles. Um, you know, and, and a lot of folks are in the Utah legislature are quite religious. Their churches have raffles. They go to schools. So I, I don't think it's as hard of a push as a statewide lottery. Yeah, I think raffles are a little bit easier of a sell than the lottery, particularly given the, the cultural feelings about gambling in the state of yeah. Utah. But this is an interesting proposal from a quite conservative lawmaker. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see where this one goes. Absolutely right. And I do think it's interesting, you know, the the legislature this year didn't get quite the revenue that they were hoping for, but they're still trying to cut taxes the next year. So this is a way that, uh, you know, she can get her fellow Republicans on board mm -hmm. that they can make up for some of those revenue shortages. Mm -hmm. On that yes. subject, <clears throat> um, th there is a, a referendum or a, a measure on the ballot coming up this November to change the way education is funded. And included in that is doing away with the sales tax on food, which has been mm -hmm. something that it's, it's been a popular issue that the legislature has avoided for years. And if that passes, that would be a tax cut of about 200, 250 million dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, also, we've seen the Federal Reserve in the last couple of days signal that it wants to uh, lower interest rates uh, two or three times in the coming year. That could uh, spur the economy a little bit in Utah. You may, when you get to the February uh, budget figures, revenue figures, you may find that there is more of a surplus than what we were counting on, which may lead to more, ta more talk about tax cuts yeah, somewhere. Absolutely right. Uh, let's talk about some national issues, but start with some campaigns first of all. Sean, it's interesting. Um, People are talking about whether or not John Curtis, the third congressional district, decides to jump in that Senate race. Talk about the speculation there, because we're already getting people talking about who might fill that spot if he does go. Exactly. I think it's it's interesting that when Mitt Romney announced that he would not be running, Curtis was an early name floated of, of a potential candidate. He 
kind of gave an interesting non-answer in a public statement on, on X, formerly Twitter, uh, regarding that. And people kind of forgot about it for a little while. And then we kind of heard these rumblings that maybe he is considering uh, a, a run. I think that's going to be a really, if he does jump in the race, as uh, some people expect, I think it's going to create a really interesting dynamic because you have Brad Wilson, another well-known name, certainly um, in, in some of the, the campaign materials I have seen positioning himself as a conservative fighter, but also cut from the same cloth as someone like Mitt Romney. And I think when you look at the entire Utah delegation, John Curtis and Mitt Romney were the most aligned on a lot of things, so it would create a really interesting dynamic um, between Brad Wilson and John Curtis if he were to enter the race to be not quite fighting for the same voters necessarily, but creating an interesting dynamic with donors, essentially, uh, yeah. uh, especially that's a, a, a oft-forgotten uh, topic among people with how much money does have influence on yeah. politics and the people you can get behind you. But yeah, it, it's it's been an interesting turn of events to hear that Curtis is is now seriously considering a Senate run. Yeah, we may hear that soon uh, also. But that, Sean brought up just an interesting point right there is uh, it starts, starts becoming a battle for those donors and those supporters that, you know, given the timeline of this thing, have been divided already. Right. Uh, and, you know, we'll see if some of the people who've backed John Curtis in the past leave the candidates that they have already started donating to. Um, what I think is really interesting is that, uh, like Sean mentioned, uh, Curtis is maybe closer to a Romney Republican than any of the other, any of the candidates that are currently in the race. Um, and so it, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, if he does enter the race, what kind of support he, he gets because of that. Because a lot of candidates um, so far who have entered the race have spent a lot of time criticizing um, positions that Romney has, maybe not necessarily saying it out loud that uh, it's a position that Romney has, but, or, you know, in the case of Trent Staggs criticizing Romney yeah, himself. Right. So, uh, Again, it, it brings an interesting dynamic back yeah. into the race. And it starts some dominoes falling, Jay, too. So we've already had one person launch uh, sort of a exploratory committee here. This is uh, Senator Mike Kennedy from Utah County talking about whether or not he might be interested in the race if John Curtis leaves and wins for Senate. Right. There, there are a lot of uh, sort of budding um, uh, politicians in that district that see, see this as an opportunity, and some, I'm sure, who've tried in the past and, and haven't won. Uh, so it's, it does set up some real intrigue there, and it's going to be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. any, any other? Oh, go, Sean. I, I was just going to say, John Curtis has been, like, like Emily was saying, cut from the same cloth as Mitt Romney in a lot of ways. And when you look at the challengers that he has had since he, he got into office, all of his challengers have been much more conservative than John yeah. Curtis. So likely who would replace him would be quite a different politician than what the third district has right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are looking at that chessboard now and trying to make a decision. And uh, from signature gathering uh, to supporters, they'll be trying to shore them up. Thank you so much for your great comments uh, this evening. Uh, we have a lot to talk about going forward as well. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.